Hello, thanks for stopping by Liberty Sessions, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. Please join me as we start liberating dreams one episode at a time. Hey there, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Sessions. We are so excited to welcome Brittany Merrill Underwood, the founder of Acola. Brittany, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do um, at Acola and what makes you guys so awesome? Oh, gosh. Um, so yeah, at Acola, um, I've been doing this work for about 14 years. I started working in Uganda when I was just 19 years old, and I'll share a little bit more about that, but um, sort of morphed into the Acola Project, which is who we are today. Acola is a nonprofit social business. Um, we are the first of our kind to retail in the luxury space, jewelry, and elevated um designer jewelry that is made by women that we equip them to um, create the jewelry and sell it through um, all different channels from the Home Shopping Network to Neiman Marcus and Every Door to boutiques across the country. And as a nonprofit, all of our profits are reinvested in our environment mission. And you talked about being the first in the luxury area. And that's something that I think is probably one of the most notable because so many of the social enterprises, whether they're for-profit or non-profit, have reached a much more mid-range target. Was it intentional for you to be more luxury-focused? What was, and and why did you do that? Yeah, so we have Acola collections for every woman at every price point. Um, and we want... Um, intentionally collections um, that speak to all different kinds of women. Um, and so we started with our sort of mass market line that retails for under $100 um, and sold that to boutiques across the country. And that became very successful. And then um, in 2014, I um, sort of pitched our project to Neiman Marcus and um, they were incredible. They launched us in every single Neiman Marcus store nationwide fall 2016, um, which is really unprecedented um, for a new brand. And we became a top 10 jewelry brand at Neiman's in our first season. And a year and a half later, we're still in every single store and expanding product categories. And I'll talk a little bit about that later, but um, it's been really, really exciting. And so Neiman's um, is our sort of elevated luxury jewelry that anything over $250 and goes up to $800 um, per piece. And then anything under that price point is sold through other distribution channels. Got it. And so tell me what you think. It's it's great, I think, for our listeners to understand. I mean, they often hear the the success story of, and then, oh my gosh, look at, we landed in at, at Neiman Marcus. What do you think Neiman Marcus saw or was willing to take um, the risk or the leap of faith in you or in the brand? What, what, what was it that you think they said, let's try this, let's do this? Yeah, I think it was four things. Um, one is that we have an authentic story. We didn't just 
tack on an impact to a product that we were already selling and making. It was something that had evolved over 14 years. And, um, you know, we are a nonprofit. So we, the only reason why we exist is to meet a social need. Um, and so we're a little bit unique in the social business movement because instead of being a business that then decides to give back in some way, we're, we're a business that's created to give back um, and do that through a non- exclusively through a nonprofit framework. So I think the authenticity of the story, I think the fact that we give 100% back um, and they hadn't heard that before. You know, it was something that, um, you know, they've heard of one for one and 10% goes back or, you know, all these different social models, um, but never in, in their space had a brand been able to say, you know, we invest all of our profits in our social mission um, as a nonprofit. And so I think they were really excited about kind of the authenticity of our story that we've been doing this for 10 years um, and that we had sort of the capability to do this at volume, um, at scale, um, while also having incredible quality and in, in design. And that's something that had taken us 10 years to build. And beyond that, we're vertical. So we actually spent the time to build <laughs> manufacturing facilities, training centers, and rural communities throughout Uganda. I mean, we literally built training centers. Um, we're one of the only 10 roofs in some of the villages we work in. And then we would train women, um, in these different techniques and, you know, we own our entire supply chain, um, and we developed it. And so I think they felt comfortable that we had, um, influence over, over every part of production, um, and including the assembly of the jewelry, which was done in Dallas, um, by women who are coming out of at-risk situations in our city. And, and they wanted to, work with women um, domestically and wanted us to empower them as well as have women benefit globally. And so I think all of those factors um, from the story to the 100% give back to the fact that we had built something over years and years that that could handle this kind of volume. Um, and then the social service side, knowing that, you know, not only are we providing economic opportunity for women, but something that's really unique about our COLA is our COLA Academy. I mean, we, um, we raise close to a million dollars every year to put into social services for the women we work with. Um, something I learned early on, it was about 2012 and I I started this journey in 2004. So it's almost been 14 years, but um, we had finally gotten sophisticated enough to do monitoring and evaluation and really assess like what our true impact was in the seven communities we worked in in Uganda. And at that point we were working with close to 400 women and um, we did all these, all these surveys and, and sort of social mapping and realized that women in our program, though they were making a living wage, um, were still dying of childbirth in their homes. And we thought, how in the world is this happening? They have the income to go to a clinic. And after diving a little bit deeper, we realized either they didn't know there was a free clinic five miles down the road or they had all these superstitions about going to the doctor. And so they were having babies by themselves in their homes. And so we, we realized at that very moment that um, helping women in at-risk situations and communities generate income without giving them the real tools they need to use their income um, to meaningfully create change in every area of their life um, is not totally helpful. So at that point, we developed that that program to address um, maternal health for women, gender-based violence, um, rights-based development, ministry programs, counseling, you name it, we do it. And I think that's also made just we're really unique in that way. I think there's a lot of social businesses that have great financial literacy programs and have been able to incorporate 
some other social service programs, which is amazing. Um, but I think our, our, as a nonprofit, that's our laser focus. And we just, our development model, um, was widely recognized. And I think that gave Neiman's the final, like, okay, this is something different, something worth investing in. And, and they really did take a huge risk. I mean, we were a nonprofit for all they knew we weren't going to be able to produce, especially, I mean, we launched in every single store online in catalog off the bat through every, every, um, every distribution platform that they have. And they took that risk on us because I think we, we had sort of all of those pieces that they had been looking for, for a social brand, um, to do something unique in this space. And, and they worked with us to build the retail infrastructure we needed to support it. And it's just been an incredible partnership. I think one of the takeaways in that is that, yes, they took a big risk, um, but it was mitigated by all of the things that you just talked about, that you had that many years in the industry, that you were um, you you went deep in your supply chain, that you had control at all those levels, that you understood... Um, what was valuable to those women in terms of it wasn't just the jewelry and that they were making a living wage. It was something beyond that. And so there was evidence of um, a coal as a value. And uh, and so I, I want our listeners to be able to hear that, that that's not just, um, oh my gosh, if you go to Neiman Marcus, they'll take a risk on you. But the, uh, that you really had, um, had, had proven your worth uh, and and the value. And I think the Dallas connection is an important one too, that they could bring it home, um, with, with the manufacturing that was, you know, the finished products being made in Dallas. And I yeah, think and we've had, pieces. I mean, it, we've had 98 women just in the past year, um, go through our Dallas program. So it wasn't like, oh, we're helping 10 women in this. I mean, we work with over 400 women in Uganda and, and the Neiman Marcus opportunity provided work for over a hundred women in just one calendar year. And so, I mean, the impact was vast because impact is our focus. And so I think something, um, as the social business movement's growing, I mean, we were so lucky to be on the cusp of this. Like we had no idea. I mean, when I started this, in 2007, you know, we were building orphanages in Uganda starting in 2004 and realized like there's just got to be a better way to, um, you know, to care for disadvantaged kids. And we started a COLA, I mean, in 2007, basically just as a better way to care for these kids. We thought if women could generate income, they could keep them in their homes and provide for them and they wouldn't need to go to an orphanage. And I mean, that was the genesis of our, our project. And so, um, it's, it started, um, in a way that solely focused on impact. And we knew we had to create jewelry that actually sold <laughs> to achieve that impact. And so while our business is tremendously important, it's, it's there to achieve our mission. Um, and that's the sole purpose of it. And so I think because of that, we've been able to go really deep into the impact side and to, building infrastructure for economic opportunity. I mean, we've drilled 23 wells in the communities that we work in. I mean, we've gone so deep and, and been able to also build a great business, but I mean, this took years. I mean, sure. it's, it's, I've been working in this field for 14 and, and doing a cola for 10. And, um, I think so many people, you know, recently have been like, Oh my gosh, that's incredible. You're a nonprofit and you're retailing at Neiman's and y'all have been so successful. Like, how did this happen? You know, and, and, and it's, it's been a really hard, long road. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, it was, it was one foot in front of the other. It was slow growth for so long. We learned so many things the hard way. I mean, but we 
persevered and I think built something um, really strong that that now has the opportunity to say yes to to some you know <laughs> huge opportunities like a Neiman Marcus or like the Home Shopping Network or some of the other big accounts that we're looking at that give um, so many women opportunity through Ecola. That's awesome. Just I, I think there's two pieces of this story that I'd love for our listener to hear. So just really briefly go back to being a sophomore in college and meeting with Sarah, the woman that you said forever changed you. What was that about? What was the genesis of this, what is now the Ecola story? Yeah, it's, it's also, I mean, I, you know, I was 19 when I got into this work and I had no desire to do this. And again, the social business movement didn't exist. Like this wasn't a thing. And it was, you know, I had promised it was 2004 and I had promised two friends my sophomore year of college that we would spend, um, the summer together and and have some great adventure. And honestly, I was thinking (laughs) somewhere maybe in Europe and I sort of tuned out of the conversation for a week. And next thing I knew we were signed up to work, um, to teach in a boarding school in in Uganda. And I'm so embarrassed to say this, but I mean, I didn't know where Uganda was on the map. I I mean, invisible children that hadn't happened yet. Uh, You know, the one campaign hadn't happened yet and no one knew. I, I mean, I certainly had just never heard of Uganda. And so I was like, wait a minute, like, this isn't what when I thought adventure kind of I was thinking Paris, idea. right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they dragged me to Uganda. So meanwhile, you know, I, I get there and I'm so uncomfortable. I'd never witnessed extreme poverty. I got really sick the first two weeks I was in country. And I mean, I was absolutely miserable and just had a terrible attitude and we were working in this um, village before we moved out to the West where we were taught in the school for the rest of the summer. And a local pastor sort of noticed my discomfort. And he said, I really want to introduce you to a woman in our community that I think will inspire you. So I said, okay. And sort of followed him up this, this windy road um, to a shack outside of Uganda's capital city, Kampala. And it was there that I met a woman named Sarah. I walked into her home and um, had no idea what to say to her. And she had these um, bamboo mats rolled up in a corner. And I asked her what they were for. And she said, children, you know, children sleep on these mats. And I thought, children, like children on these mats on this floor, you know, it's as big as my closet. Like what? She said, yeah, you know, my husband left to work in town and um, I have a daughter and and he gives me a a little bit of money um, every you know, every week to eat. And, and I don't tell him, but when he's away, I take three kids into my home and, you know, this woman had no way to provide for them, but she literally would go hungry so they could, could eat. And it just totally shook me out of my complacency. I thought, you know, here I am, someone who's been given so much and I've done nothing for anyone in my life. And here's a woman again, she's, she's, she's starving. So, so these, these children who, who don't have food, can live. And I mean, it shook me out of my complacency and and that was the beginning of the Sicola journey. I love that. I love that there was somebody who saw that you needed that introduction to Sarah and made the connection for you and um, how Sarah literally forever changed you. And now your story becomes something that will compel you. You become the Sarah story for someone else as they hear this podcast, as they've seen you on CNN or read about you or just gone to the Ecola About page, you become Sarah for somebody else um, by telling the story. I love that. Um, tell us a little bit, you you hinted at Dallas earlier, and I'd love for our listeners to understand how that work 
in Uganda ended up connecting to the work you are uh, doing in Dallas as well. Can you just back up a little bit and tell us that? Absolutely. So, I mean, so I, you know, started working in Uganda in 2004, um, moved there when I graduated from college to oversee this huge orphanage project um, in 2006 and was living there. And during that time, started a COLA in 2007, sort of as that better response to um, caring for kids in need. And by 2014, we had, again, we had 400 women in our project. We were working in, you know, seven different communities in Uganda at that point. And um, our jewelry line had grown. And our actually, even before our product really took off, on the national level, our, our development model did. We, we had a lot of recognition for the social service side that we were providing for, for women and combining with economic opportunity to kind of holistically bring women and children out of poverty. And I was doing some work at the Bush Center, the Bush Presidential Library um, in Dallas with their women's initiative. And, and through that work, I met the president of the Dallas Women's Foundation, incredible woman. And she said, why in the world do we not have a cola in Dallas? And I thought, well, because we work in agrarian communities in Uganda. Like, I don't know if this <laughs> I don't see. Work. I don't see the parallel. Yeah. Yeah. And in an urban context. And she said, here's the thing. Our foundation is supporting all of these incredible nonprofits who are rehabilitating women who are coming out of some of the most intense, difficult situations that you could possibly imagine in our own backyard. And and the problem she was seeing is women would go back to prostitution, back to poverty, back to jail, even though Mm -hmm. they had been rehabilitated by these nonprofits because they just didn't have economic and economic opportunity. Um, And they would suddenly have hope. And then the door was just shut in their face over and over again, or they needed a flexible work opportunity because they want to be there for their kids. And they're the sole caretaker of all these little kids. And they, they can't, you know, leave for work for 12 hours a day. And and then yet their kids need that income to eat. And there was just this need and and this gap that women are, were sort of falling through the cracks in our city and they needed a flexible work opportunity at a $15 living wage. Um, And she said, do you think, do you think y'all could do that? And and that started, started this conversation to where in 2015, we ran a pilot and we tested this with 15 women um, that were sent to us by all these different nonprofits in our city who were working with them and, and, and wanted them to get an opportunity and they, they couldn't find one. They sent them to us and they produced our mass market line. And I mean, it was incredible. Everything translated. Like women here needed this in the same way that women in Uganda did. And what's incredible to me, we just kind of got our first um, kind of round of data for this past year after we've been in Neiman Marcus and the impact on our women. 40%, only 40% of our women in Dallas could feed their kids um, adequately when they started wow. a cola. And now it's over 80. Um, and that's, you know, feeding them in the way they think they should be fed. And it's just amazing. It was very similar data in Uganda. I mean, that was, we had very similar statistics. And when we first started this, I thought, surely this is going to be supplemental income. You know, women have a sure. lot of ways um, that, you know, our government takes care of them. And, and, and that's just not true. I mean, they have such similar needs here. And that was so shocking to me after, you know, working in the developing world and just assuming that, you know, we've got it taken care of here and and we don't, um, in a lot of ways. And so it worked, it was successful. The one snafu was that living wage. Our women were making close to $8 an hour producing our line that retailed for under hundred dollars. And that's when we decided, you know, the best next step was pitching, 
an elevated line to a Neiman Marcus to so they could we could sell a more elevated product that provides that living wage and and we did and that's when it really took off. I uh, there's a couple things in what you said. One is I think there's seems to be something in you know that's entered into the more domestic consciousness around issues that we have assigned to developing countries being issues that we have at home, whether it's a conversation we're having about trafficking, human trafficking, whether it's for um, sex or for child labor or whatever it is, that while it might look different here, it's more coercive or it's it's a, a little bit more insidious in in the way it's happening. It's still happening. And we seem to be becoming more, or there seems to be a heightened awareness around what is happening locally uh, that we have um, overlooked and how do we enable uh, those people to be thriving in the same way that we are doing overseas. Um, That's one thing. The other thing that I think is really interesting about the work that you're doing is the way that you have tied a global issue First of all, it is truly global. It is not only an international issue, something outside of this country, um, but is an issue that we have to deal with both at home, both domestically and, um, and internationally. And the way you've tied them together to say, we actually have more in common than we think we do. And so the solutions are also in common. We actually can bring some of those solutions home. And I think while this is what's working for Ocola, I think there are many organizations, both for-profit and non-profit, who can hear what you're saying and start to think about, how do I apply that to whatever we're running here? How do I apply that to the mechanism we have here? Um, well, and and there'd be lots of social, social solutions. It's what? Yeah. It really is. I mean, and that's where we, we've had, a, we actually just joined um, the Clinton Global Initiative is, is one of their new focuses is on strengthening um, domestically um, the artisan market for women um, and, and, and opportunities there. And um, so we've been working with them a little bit lately and on their new initiative. And their big question is, you know, there's all these social businesses and most of them are working in developing countries exclusively. Like how do we get them to incorporate women in our own country as well. And and without forgetting that women across the world also need our, our help and an opportunity too. And, and the way we've addressed that, not only do we have different product lines that are made by, you know, women here versus women in Uganda, but we've kind of created this, this full impact model out of this idea of how do we help women at the same time, both locally and globally through, through the production of our products. And so, so what we've done is, um, the workshops that we created in Uganda, um, we, we've trained women to actually make beads. Like they custom make a lot of the beads that go into the Neiman Marcus necklace that's assembled by women in at-risk situations in Dallas. So you have this kind of connection of, you have a necklace and, not only is it helping women here who are silk knotting every bead and, you know, potentially making $45 just from that necklace, if it takes three hours to make, that's how much they make from the necklace, which is tremendous. Um, but then you also have the beads in it, which at every point possible, um, we incorporate those beads that our women in Uganda make and their lives are being transformed as well. So you're wearing this necklace and it's transforming lives in Dallas and Uganda. And even beyond that, we thought, well, well, the way we ship our product, like we, we want that to have an impact, even the way we package it um, and just be thoughtful that at every single point, 
we're giving women opportunities. So we actually, to uh, actually three years ago, turned our um, distribution center into a second chance job program. And so we have women who have been formerly incarcerated, sexually trafficked, you name it, um, kind of come out of that situation and they're referred to us and, and we teach them the hard skills they need, inventory management, customer service, you name it, to kind of get back on their feet. Um, and it's been tremendously successful as well. And those same women now have applied to start working in our retail stores. And now we have another layer where not only is it our beads make an impact on women, the assembly of the jewelry, our distribution center, but even the way we sell the jewelry, we're training women in, um, in, in retail, um, which is really exciting. So I think any brand can think about it that way and say, maybe, you know, not everyone's a nonprofit. Not everyone can have that full impact that we can have because we're a nonprofit and we have the luxury to put our mission first. But what they can do is think about how much through their supply chain, through the distribution of their product, the way they sell it, can they give women opportunity, um, whether it's, you know, abroad or in their own backyard. And I really believe every, every business can do both. I love what you just said, and you are leading us right into the next question, which is really, I'm so curious with all that you've been able to do on the retail end, why you remained a nonprofit. And I think you've answered that, but I, I want to ask it very specifically because I think, again, with the rise of social impact um, organizations, you see them making decisions to be for-profit or non-profit. Tell me and tell our listeners, more importantly, why you felt it necessary to, one, remain non-profit and two, not divide up and have a profit, a for-profit ECOLA branch and a not-for-profit a cola branch? That's a great question. We literally, I'm not, I was just on the phone with another social business that's emerging this morning discussing that because they're wrestling with that. And, and anyone you talk to that's in this, in this movement wrestles with that question. Um, what organizational structure should we create? What makes sense? Um, for our, um, and it's different for every single one. And um, there's this great Stanford Social Innovation Review article that I, I, I send people to, and and maybe um, that I can. Would you pass please? It on I'd to love and, to. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to be able to put that up in our show notes. You, yeah, and what it does, you go through it, and it basically asks you all these questions, like what's what's your goal, <laughs> what's your mission? Do you need to make a profit personally? Do you um, want to grow rapidly? Do you what you know? all these questions that you have to answer that, that lead you to the right decision. I mean, I think with the emergence of benefit corporations, everyone assumes that if you are a business that does good, you should be a B Corp. And, and that's not always the case. That's a great for-profit model. Um, if that's the direction you go in, but, um, it's also very hard firm. to get. So you need to you need to really have your ducks in a row before you Yeah, you do hard that. to get, but also, I mean, not always the answer. I yeah. mean, in our case, our social mission is why we exist. I would never do this if it wasn't for that. I mean, this this is to transform and empower women. And that means if you're a social mission first organization throughout time, you would be a nonprofit. Um, and the nonprofit has the governance system to ensure that you do put your social mission first, that it's not compromised as you grow. It's not compromised um, in any decision that you make. Um, and the IRS monitors that. So there's this whole level of accountability that um, that mission is, is, um, is preserved. And, and that is 
That's my heart. And so for us, it made the most sense to be in a nonprofit. Now, I will tell you, hitting rapid growth <laughs> in a nonprofit framework, you got to get really creative. And, and in some ways, I think we're sort of pioneering the way for other um, other businesses that, that are created to just achieve a social mission. That's their, that, that's their sole goal. Um, to be able to stay in a nonprofit framework as they scale. I have, a, there's a lot of great organizations, um, a lot of great friends of ours that started, you know, around the same time we did. And, um, they've, they've hit growth and they've, they've decided to form a for-profit and a mm-hmm. nonprofit, or they've just, you know, they're just to be corp now. And, um, none of those things are wrong. Um, and I understand how difficult it is to grow well as a nonprofit, just because you're, you're restricted in the way you can raise capital. Um, you know, we have, we're in every single Neiman Marcus store. We're a top 10 jewelry brand um, in that space. We have a huge account with Home Shopping Network. We have several other big accounts that we're going to announce soon that are, that are um, in the works. And um, we can't <laughs> give out equity. So we can't get that flexible long-term capital that most businesses can get when they start growing to hire the talent they need and to perform with excellence. So we've had to get really creative and all the capital we raise is through debt. Um, we, we have some great capital partners that have given us um, loans at very low interest rates. I mean, so generous um, because they believe in what we're doing and I'm um, with very long terms. So it gives us, you know, five years to, to do what we need to do before we have to start paying it down. And, and without those capital partners, we would have had to take part of this for profit just because we wouldn't have been able to access the capital we needed to grow. And, uh, and if you can't grow, you can't grow, you sure. know, and things fall apart and you can't hire the team you need. And so we've, we've created this, this capital model that supports this and, and it's allowed us to grow well, but it's been very complicated. We've had to work outside the box, draw outside the lines. We've worked with banks in very creative ways, impact investors, foundations, you name it. Um, and I, at some point I hope we can sort of, uh, you know, write out our experience and, and create, you know, some, some kind of, um, some kind of roadmap for other people who really want to stay in this framework. I'm glad you said that. Cause I was going to say, please be writing everything down. And instead of forwarding the Stanford report, I want to hear the Brittany report. I want to, I want <laughs> you to give us the template, not from a philosophical point of view, but from a, this is what we actually did. And even things as, um, concrete as if you're going to choose a nonprofit structure, then understand what the debt vehicle might need to be for rapid growth. Like things, things that are so specific, because I think people just, we don't know and we can't anticipate and they don't. And so many people have, you know, again, it's fine if you're not growing, if you're not hitting rapid growth, like we did with the Neiman Marcus opportunity, you know, if you're growing slow and steady, it works being in a nonprofit. You manage your own growth. It's great. You have people who are willing to donate to your business. You start growing fast. I mean, we we don't raise any money through donations for our business. Our business runs itself. Um, it, it you know it it's profitable. It and and we grow it through impact investments structured as low interest loans. All of our donations exclusively are restricted to our social services. Um, but we do that now. I mean, in the early days, we, you know, we were setting things up. We were figuring this out. We didn't even know if our product would sell or it would work. And it was, it was really great. We had a, you know, handful of donors who, um, 
you know, in an unrestricted way, helped us kind of build the business with philanthropic capital. Um, And we only started taking on debt, um, uh, you know, these low interest loans when we started growing really fast through Neiman Marcus. Um, and then suddenly obviously had all these new opportunities that came out of that. Um, and, and one of the keys to that, and I'll, you know, hopefully write something up for you for anyone who's, who's experiencing this, who, who wants to do it through that nonprofit framework. Um, we, we, we were so lucky to be given these, um, land assets that were donated by several different developers. Um, a lot of times it's really complicated for a nonprofit to take land as a gift. And most nonprofits don't want to because it doesn't really help them. In our case, it gives us an asset base, which has allowed us to take on debt additional debt against yeah. a higher asset base to yeah, to then be able to grow. So for Neiman Marcus, we worked with an incredible bank who gave us all of the financing at 0.07% interest, wow. which is like, I mean, incredibly generous. They gave us a five-year term. Um, and they gave us the capital we needed not only to build our team to, to where we needed to build it to execute this well, but also finance our product line. And um, that was our first, we had done an impact investment before that, but that was our first very large um, capital investment. And we've been working with partners ever since that, um, you know, not everyone can do those kind of terms. And, and so we, we've taken other terms as well. But um, the reason why they were able to take the risk on us is we had we had land, we had an asset that they, they could, um, they didn't collateralize it, but they could have, and they liked to know it was there. So there's this kind of super crazy, <laughs> again, all these things. If you want to do this as a nonprofit, you want to preserve your social mission. You, you, you are doing this because you want the women to be the bottom line and the true yeah. beneficiaries and the only organizational structure that can completely guard that um, I believe is, is a nonprofit framework. So, um, yeah, we're trying to, we're trying to pave the way and, you know, carve our way up Mount Everest and hope we can like share our journey with others. There's, <laughs> you, there. you have shared your journey with others. And I'm recalling you were part of, I mean, you and I have actually, I think we met in 2011. You were part of the very yep. first conference that I did. And I remember we had a, a marketplace for social impact, um, for nonprofits specifically, and you were there and, um, and Ecola was, really still in its infancy compared to all the things that you were doing now. So it's been tremendous growth, even though you talk about this being over a 14 year time span, there's been a ton of growth and what you've been able to develop, not only in product and as a brand, but in the the lives of, of women, both internationally and, and locally. And there's something I just want to address. You said when you were talking about the land piece, you talked about how lucky you've been. And yes, you were in the right place at the right time, but you created those opportunities by day in and day out, speaking to people about Ecola, understanding what the social mission is, understanding who you're serving. And I think our listeners um, need to really grasp those pieces that all of these things that you were able to accomplish by partnering with the right people, having people come alongside you who understood what the bottom line for a cola was, happened because of the daily and the regular and the consistent activity over those years. And I think that's the takeaway for people is that that luck is created. Um, it's it's not manufactured yeah. out, out of thin air. And then the yeah, other thing- Yeah, that's a good- that's a really good point. I mean, I think if there's one um, 
single thing that I've done right in this is it's honestly just persevering. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's trying to learn from our mistakes. I mean, we, we, I mean, again, I moved to Uganda when I was, um, I just graduated from college, I had no idea what we were doing. I mean, I had to grow and learn and, and commit to a country and a place. And, um, we, you know, started out doing orphanage homes and I'll never forget. I was 24, maybe 25. Um, when we finished that project. And I mean, so many things had gone wrong. I mean, it just, we built the building, but (laughs) that was about the only thing that went right. It's all those lessons that have gotten you to this point. And it's all those hard lessons that, um, needed to be learned. Not, not so you wouldn't make the mistake again, but so that you could better understand the problem. Well, and that's what people have to realize. And I think the best advice I got is in that moment, I was so disillusioned and just thought like, why did we even, did we help more than we, did we hurt more than we helped? Or, you know, like, why did, you know, why am I even here? Like, did I waste these years or, you know, and I had this mentor say, you know what, that's the, that's the problem with your generation. And I said, what? And, you know, he said, um, just wise man who had worked in Uganda for years. He said, you know what, y'all, you do something, something doesn't work out um, and you leave and you go on to the next thing. And he said, what if you committed to a country? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, what if you took everything that you've learned over the past, you know, five years, um, a lot of hard lessons and, and actually built something out of that? that could work. And, and what if you committed to this country? You started working here when you were 19. Like, what do you think you'll be able to accomplish if you're 60 and you've, you've stayed the course and, and it, I mean, that I'll never forget that. And that was the moment actually when we started Ecola. Um, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to take all the lessons from this orphanage project and I'm going to try to create a model that's, that works. And, and, and we persevered and we pivoted because we needed to, And that's, I think, what's been so successful about this model is we've never given up. We've learned from the hard way a lot of times, but we've learned um, and we've persevered. And I feel like for anyone who's doing this, um, it's not easy. There's never been a season um, that's easy. Even now, people are like, gosh, this is amazing. You have all these opportunities. And I'm like, well, think about what that means. <laughs> you yeah. know, we, it's just as complicated now as it was yeah. then, you know, we've got to, we've got to keep on growing and there's a lot of pressure there. And, um, it's never been easy, but, but because of our mission and, and the lives changed and the women transformed, um, it is the most incredible thing I've ever been a part of. I love what I do every day. And I think that the secret to our success has been, we just have not given up and we've, we've, we've always, always, always looked at our failures as not, you know, not to give up and be discouraged, but, but as a way to, to kind of learn and be better. Um, and, and that, that is, I think what makes a social entrepreneur at its core. And that piece of wisdom and advice from that gentleman, um, can be applied to for-profit, not-for-profit, any entrepreneur who is committing to a mission. And when the mission is beyond the financial bottom line, again, for-profit or not-for-profit, I think that's when that's where the perseverance comes from. And that's a great way of shifting uh, your paradigm and saying this is about committing to something. This isn't just about it's not working in the one, two, three year span that I've given it. This is about looking at a you know an an audience, a problem, a, a widget, 
and saying, how can I, how can I make this better? Whatever it is. And Brittany, that's a nice um, way for us to kind of morph into the next portion of this interview, which is really about you giving our listeners some advice and some resources and some tips. So we'll just kind of quickly go through what, when, when we hear all this, we're like, oh my gosh, this is, this is like the, the fulfillment of all of these years of hard, hard work. And this sounds like a story that is out of reach for, for many of our listeners. Give them sort of, um, the day to day, a window into what it really means to run this organization. And, and so I guess they can have a taste for what is required to ultimately get to what you just shared with us. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, I think something I've learned and, um, I, I've, you know, a really important lesson I've learned over the years is, um, every single person is created in such a unique and beautiful way for a reason. Um, I remember being, you know, 22 and setting up, you know, what became a cola and, and being so frustrated that I was, I'm terrible with numbers. Like I, I literally, I think I confused them. I failed every math course, like since I was <laughs> 10 years old, you know, like I'm really ADD. I mean, truly like I'm the person that my brain goes to 20 different things in, in one second. And, um, I'm, you know, juggling so many things in my mind at one time. And, um, I, but I'm really creative and I, you know, am a visionary and I can see what something can be years before it happens. And it's already real in my mind. And, and I, I've learned to just embrace who I am and who God made me and the strengths that he gave me and, and know that like, you're not good at everything. And I think that's, that's something that, you know, at 22 was really hard for me. I just thought, surely I can't run a company if I'm terrible in all these ways. And I'm, you know, all, all of these things. And I, I, how am I going to do this? And, and I learned quickly, you, you hire around your weaknesses. And I think that's, that's been one of the, the ways we've been successful and grown throughout the years. I mean, I knew right away, I'm not a manager. I'm not a detailed person. I am not, um, you know, I'm not the one who crosses the T's and dots the I's I paint the rainbows, you know, and I, I always had, um, someone who was an incredible executor who could take my ideas, my dreams, my creativity and, um, and put it into action in a, in a way that worked. And, you know, sometimes we've had great people that did that. And at certain times in our growth, like we've had people that you know struggled a little bit more in that role, but, um, I've always had sort of a partner in this that, that was able to do that, that with me. Um, and, and as a result, I think as I've grown year over year, I've realized more and more, um, that, you know, you can grow in certain areas and I think it's good to challenge yourself to be better and everything, but also to like really live into what you're great at. Yeah. Um, and so my day to day now, I mean, I, I truly, truly try to stay out of our operations as much as possible. And the second I get in them, I start changing things and have new ideas. Like, get and, out, I mean, Brittany. <laughs> we don't want like, this. Yeah. Like my team's like, oh my gosh, we're going to, you know, this is too much. And so I've learned that, um, you know, where, where my strengths are and, and they are creating, you know, who we are and sort of reinventing ourselves every year and going out and getting these new opportunities and inspiring people to be a part of our work and making sure our models really having impact and, 
um, that's where, that's where I thrive. And, and I've been able to, and again, this is, I've learned this after doing this since I was 19 and I'm 33 now. And I'm, you know, really, I think finally getting good at staying in those areas. And so, um, I remember, you know, even just a year and a half ago, when we launched through Neiman's, I mean, I almost burned out. I, I was five seconds away from completely, utterly burning out. And um, I had one, I had a one-year-old. I was pregnant with my second kid under two. And um, we launched through Neiman's. I had um, my second son two weeks after that. I was on a plane a week later going to trunk shows and all these different Neiman Marcus locations, like pumping on an airplane under my sweater. I mean, it just was like this <laughs> the season of do, like, right? yeah. this is not sustainable. And and I've realized even more just taking those lessons of leaning in to, to how God made you and embracing that and being confident in that. Um, and that, that also you need to have boundaries around that. Um, and I, I've really learned this year that um, there's about four or five things I need to do and there are things that no one else in our organization can really do. And if someone else can do something at this point, they should. Um, and we have a team that's big enough to where um, I shouldn't be doing things that anyone else can be doing. Like I need to be doing stuff that, that only I uniquely can do. And I've started having a lot of really great boundaries around that and suddenly found recently this just kind of incredible balance, <laughs> like this peace in the midst of like really rapid growth for us. Um, because I've learned to say, you know what? Like, I would love to do this, but I have someone on my team who's even better than me. And I'm sure. going to send them <laughs> to, sure, to do this project. It's both best to... for the organization. It's best for you. And I find that the busier, busier we are, whether it's whether our busyness comes from the workload, whether our busyness is affected by becoming a new parent, whatever it is, it actually makes us focus more um, for the sake of the business on what we are good at and, um, and, and, and identifying who those people are around us that can do a much better job in a much more efficient way. You have to. And I think there's this sort of identity crisis. I've, I, there's a, um, there's a couple girls I've been talking to lately and they're in their kind of mid twenties where I think this really hits for a lot of women, especially, um, where you realize you're not good at everything <laughs> and you think there's a problem with that and you doubt yourself and you doubt your ability to be a great leader and sort of go through this, should I be doing this anyway, kind of, kind of phase. And, and then I think you come out of that in your early thirties, at least I've seen this happen a lot with a lot of women and, and start to get really comfortable with just the way you are and laugh at the things that you're not great at and just know that other people need to be doing them and that you need your team. You cannot do this alone. And, um, I certainly could have never done any of these things that we've accomplished, um, on, on my own. And, um, and, uh, you know, as you're, I'm a mom now of, of two boys, I'm sure you can kind of hear them in the background. I've like locked myself. No, in we haven't. Wow. Have this conversation. They're like screaming downstairs. Um, but, uh, you know, anything I say yes to is, is a no to them at sure. this point. And that's how I look at my time. And, you know, I have a certain amount of time I can give to work every week. And, um, and a certain amount of things I can say yes to. And, and that's where I think guarding your time, your talents and, and living into what you're great at, also having boundaries around what you're not relying on your team is what takes, you know, someone who's maybe a good entrepreneur and allows them to be an incredible visionary. Um, cause you know, you can't do it on your own. And I've, uh, yeah, really enjoyed this season. Um, that, that is actually probably the most busy season we've ever had. And we've had busy seasons. 
And your company's better for it. Your company's more intact. It's stronger. The foundation is stronger. That's that's the irony with all of this is that in the end, it ends up building um, a better organization, a better institution. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't know why it always takes us so long to learn those lessons, but it's well, one that I, I hear think, over and over and over again. And well, a lot of it women, is just we're letting so hard go. on ourselves. We're hard I think on women ourselves. especially. And I think even as a mom, you're like, gosh, like I'm great at these things as a mom, but why can't I do this better? You know, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a social entrepreneur or you're a mom or whatever you're doing. Um, I think we, we do that to ourselves. And I think one of, again, the biggest lessons I've learned and I've even seen in our women is we are so, all of us are so unique. I mean, and, and, and so are organizations and that's where people are like, I've had someone ask me, they're like, well, do you think it's better that you'll do this through a nonprofit than someone who's a B Corp or whatever? And no, I mean, this is, this works for us. Yeah. This is aligns with the vision that I had for these women. Um, and, and I've, I've, I've been able to, you know, you know, do that, but it's, it's not everything works for everyone. And, um, every leader is different and gifted in unique ways. And I just think embracing that and just being really comfortable with who you are and have a sense of humor about the things that you're not. And um, I think that helps you really mature as a leader. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I would love to hear a little bit about um, maybe three things that you have identified as being the difficulties of working with uh, and I want to include Dallas in this, so I don't want to limit it to your Uganda experience. But let's say in working with um, women who have perhaps undeveloped skills, whether it's Dallas or Uganda, what are three things that you've had to put in place as an organization to really uh, better manage that? Again, I'd love for our listeners to hear a little bit of just some really tactical ways in which they could take what Brittany said and, you know, institute it in their or own organization. So three things that you do with this, uh, again, uh, audience or group of people that you're bringing into your organization that are, uh, that need to, you need to do to bring them sort of up to speed. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing we do, and I've, I've learned the importance of this over the years is, I mean, listen and really understand, you know, where they're coming from and, and what their story is and, 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 you know, and what they need to kind of overcome the things that, that they've gone through. And, and again, it's different for different women coming out of different situations and different parts of the world. Um, but, but what is the same is, um, you know, every single one of us, it doesn't matter if we've gone through that or not. And we, you know, we want, to know that our life matters and counts. And I think that the second thing we do and in, in, in we, we see with these women is it's not enough for them just to generate an income to survive. Like we weren't just, we weren't created to, to survive. We were created to give back. We were created to transform. We were created for our lives to make a difference. And, and they have the same dreams and vision as well. And sometimes they just haven't had the luxury of um, having that really be unlocked. And so I think as we work with these women, um, you know, it's, we kind of see our work as, um, just a platform to kind of dig into their lives and, and love them and help them see that there's so much more than they ever thought. And they can do so much more than they ever believed. And, um, that's kind of our ethos going into, you know, any of these communities that we work in is, um, knowing that these women are, 
are so much more than they, they see or know and so much more than society sees in them. And when we kind of start out with that belief and, and see what they're great at versus what they're not great at, or if we go into a community, we don't look at everything that's wrong. We look at what's here, what's right, what can we build on? Like, what can we help them see um, and work alongside these women? And, and they start to dream um, and we dream with them and, and create a vision for, for their families and their lives. And, and the work is helps achieve that. Um, so I think that the way we, we look at the women we work with, um, is, 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 is just as important as the work we do with them. Um, and you can, you know, be doing great things for someone, but if they're treated in a certain way, you can empower them while also disempowering them. Um, and so approach to us is everything, um, and really putting, you know, leadership in their hands and, um, being there to facilitate things, but, letting them take the reins and um, build out a lot of these programs, projects. And um, I mean, I remember when we launched in Dallas, we started working with, you know, a group of women who've never had a job and a lot of them didn't have much of, much of an education either. And, um, you know, in Uganda, when we started, we had to teach women how to count because they didn't know how to count. So they couldn't count the beads on a necklace. And that was kind of step one. And, and even in doing that, there's a way where that's, you know, and this could be disempowering in a way where it's like, Hey, we are going to learn something new. This is awesome. Like, this is great for you. This is so exciting. And, um, aren't you excited for what this is going to do for your life? And and then, you know, years later seeing that in Dallas and women were trying to learn how to silk knot necklaces. And they all were like, this is too hard. And it's really hard. I mean, it's really hard. I can't do it. Um, but you have to, you know, knot these beads for Neiman Marcus, um, with five strands of silk and do these tiny knots that you, you do after every bead and you have to burn the knots in just a way where they don't, you know, light on fire and break the necklace, but, (laughs) you know, um, attach them. I mean, it's really hard to do. And they all were like, we can't do this. And this is too hard. And, you know, we, as a team, you know, kind of thought, you know what, like, we're probably not in the right place to be like, yes, you can, you can do anything. Like they weren't ready for that yet. So what we did is we had some of our other women who had been with us for three years and women who had started working in our distribution center and, you know, never knew how to turn on a computer, much less use email. And now they're running the back end of a cola and they came in and they were like, guys, like we didn't know how to do any of this. And now we're like, we're running things like you can do this. Like we did it too. And we'll walk alongside you, tell you our story and how we recovered and, um, give you hope. And suddenly we had women who three years ago had come out of, you know, we're sort of fresh out of jail, you know, suddenly now becoming leaders and change makers in our program, giving hope to other women who didn't feel like they could do it, um, and changing lives. And, and, and suddenly they became the transformer and the empower and in our organization, like far beyond what we could have done. Um, and I think that my just advice in working with women with um, who, who don't have many skills, um, that they know of yet, they have the skills, they just haven't been unlocked is, um, you know, approaching it in that way, um, makes all the difference. Is there a national or perhaps even a local chapter of something that let's say a listener is, um, you know, in their first to five years of starting up their organization and they're like, Oh, I really love what Brittany's been able to incorporate in terms of including these women. I'd love to find my, you know, Los Angeles chapter or my Cleveland chapter or my New York chapter of XYZ, which is an organization that 
helps these women or an organization that helps you identify groups um, that you can employ? Is there anything like that that you can recommend we check out? Yeah, I would, um, if you're looking to work with women domestically, I think the best place to start is with either the a woman's foundation, the women's foundation of Texas or the women's foundation of wherever okay. of Dallas, or, um, they, they know the, the groups of women that are at risk and who need opportunity. They know where to connect you and you can work in partnership with these great groups or also United way. I mean, they have great, um, sort of these networks and, and all these major cities that, that know, and the women who need opportunity and know the organizations that do it well. And I think if you don't have a lot of experience doing this, I mean, I, I, you know, learned this <laughs> the hard way through five years, you know, working on the ground in Uganda. Um, and we have a great team that really built this out who, um, you know, committed to living in country and, um, learning the white practices and, um, uh, you know, um, development tools to do this well. And, and I did that in grad school too, but if you, you can't, you don't sometimes always have the time to do all of that sure. if you're, you know, executing this. And, and so I think relying on people who do do it and have that knowledge and partnering with them and, um, you know, asking the right questions of who's, who's doing this right and how can you come alongside them to offer something that they usually can't, which is a job opportunity at a living wage <laughs> to a disadvantaged population. So I think there's, there's so much, uh, partnership is everything. And I think if you're just starting out and, you know, figuring out how to do this, like finding those groups who've, who maybe don't offer what you could offer, which is employment, but they offer something else and do it well and just partnering with them and learning. Sure. It's them. back to the conversation we were having earlier about knowing what you do well and finding people who can do things better than you to, to, to work with. And in this case, it's, uh, instead of human beings, it's organizations. And, um, I think the same applies. So we'll try and find what a few of those local chapters are and give you guys, um, in the show notes, some examples of what Brittany's talking about. Cause I think that would be great for people to have easy access to. Um, Brittany, you talked earlier about becoming a parent and what that meant for your work life. And it's clear from hearing all the things that you've been doing both in Uganda and in Dallas, that you lead an incredibly busy life. What are some of the resources that you've found that are helping you to stay organized, both in business and life? So maybe some apps, a few books you've read, um, just some tips or tricks that you do in your day to help manage your time. We'd love to hear those. Yeah. So I, you know, it's funny. I don't have any time to read any of the books that give you the tips, which I probably need to incorporate more of that. So I've honestly, I've looked at friends or mentors where I'm like, they're doing something right. And they probably read the books that I don't have time to read. And I'm just going to ask them what to do in, you know, different situations. Or, I mean, I remember when I had my first child, I'm, you know, I'm a big picture visionary person. Like I'm not the type to put my kid on a very strict schedule, but I had a friend who I really admired, um, and her kids are amazing. And I just said, what, what are you doing? Like, what's, what's helping you? And she has a great business as well. Like, you know, leave, leave this life. And she said, you know, it's not my personality. It's not really your personality type, but like get on a schedule, get these kids on a schedule. So at least they have rhythm and, while your life may be a little hectic and chaotic and, you know, they have consistency and a, a rhythm and, and a steady schedule. And, and I did that. And that's been such an anchor for me um, and for my kids, because my husband's a CEO as well. So we're in a unique situation where both of us travel a lot, both of us work 
all the time and are ultimately responsible for the organizations we run. Um, and so having two kids under two, I think it's been so great for them to have that steadiness that maybe we don't have, but, but they have, and we've ha- found great help. Um, we actually ended up getting an au pair in this season because it is so crazy that we thought, you know, we really want someone to live with us and, and help us with our kids. So there's more consistency again for them, even if we're sort of all over the place right now. And um, we have a wonderful South African nanny come live with us. And she's been the anchor for our family in this season where neither one of us can be the kind of anchor we really want to be in the future, just because it's such a busy season. Um, and And with that schedule and with her steady presence, like we've been able to kind of come and go and do what we need to do um, while our kids still have that, you know, steady, um, consistent life that, sure. that, that, that they need. And, um, and that's really been, um, I mean, that's anchored us in this season and just realizing when you do need help. Yeah. I mean, I remember we, 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 our pair started before I had my second child and I just could hear my mom's voice in my head of like, why in the world are you having someone live in help when you have one child, you know? And that was just like in my head and my husband talked about it and we talked about it and he said, Brittany, like her lives are highly unusual, you know? And, and, and if this is what we need to get through this season and do it well and, and, and for do this for our kids well, like, let's do it. And it's, it's been amazing for us. And that's not always the answer, but I think being able to say like, when you need help, like have help. And it doesn't mean you're going to need help in every single season, but you may be in a season of life where you're starting up your business or it's really taking off and it requires a lot of you. Um, and just realizing there's a community around you, um, that can help as well. I love that. What about, um, on the very kind of brass tax end of things. Like what about an, is there an app that you regularly use between you and your team? Is there, um, sort of a third party software that you guys rely on for organization or for finances, or is there anything like that, that you really love and just couldn't imagine, uh, living without? We're actually just starting to implement some of those. I mean, for inventory management, Unleashed has like changed our life. Um, It was, I mean, it's, it's been, especially since we're vertical. So um, that's been a great program. We're, we're looking at some project management tools um, to kind of help as our team grows rapidly, make sure that things, you know, are getting done um, as they should and, you know, every area of our work. Um, and on the mom side, I use the Moms on Call app. They create schedules for you. So you can kind of type in, I have a two-year-old and a one-year-old and like, what's the ideal time that they eat and they sleep and they nap and um, they play. And um, I've, I've followed that because again, I didn't even have time, of course, to read the book. (laughs) So I got the app and it kind of tells you what to do anyway, and then got advice from friends on, on other things. And so those are kind of the, the, those are good ones. We haven't heard some of those. I, 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 we'll definitely have those in the show notes. So if you're driving, don't pull over, you'll be able to get those. (laughs) Um, those are great. Those have been great. And then again, I, the times that I do, which I don't have as much time to read as I used to when I was in grad school or wherever. And, um, I love, you know, putting just books on my phone. And as if I'm, you know, and I'm waiting for a meeting to start, or if I'm on a plane or in a taxi, I just pull out my phone and I'm like, at least if I can read like a chapter of this or, you know, um, books on entrepreneurship, books on spiritual life and balance and being a mother. And so I get little snippets of it. Um, but yeah, I, um, I think it's gonna be a while before I get to dive into 
books again. Sure, sure. You can also add really awesome podcasts to your list like this one. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, a, no, I love podcasts. There's too. lots of great takeaways in podcasts and, and it's kind of a condensed way of getting bits of information that you can kind of ser- just focus um, on what it is you're looking for. And there is truly a podcast for that. Um, Okay, Brittany, thank you, I think, for giving us a wealth of um, background and history and information. And and I think just painting a realistic, but a really um, inspired picture for for us. Um, But I want to ask you a question. What if you had to go back and do it all over again? What would be something that you would do differently? Just one thing, just kind of a quick little, I would do this. Wow. Um, I think, I think I'd be less defensive. Hmm. I think, yeah, when I was younger, I, I think, you know, I don't know. I think I would have been, I would have learned a little bit quicker in, in the earlier years. I think now I've become really comfortable with, you know, learning and listening. But I think, um, I was really, you know, an eager, idealistic, you know, 20 year old. And I, I wish there were, there were moments that I, you know, stepped back and, and, and listened more and, um, and, and took more advice. Um, instead of having to figure it out the hard way. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Probably Thank that. you. That's such a vulnerable, um, response uh, answer. And I think it's one that it is not limited to 20 year olds. There's plenty of, um, defensiveness when we're coming out with something that we're passionate about, that we've spent a lot of time, um, building up. And when we tell that story, we, we aren't looking for people to poke holes. We're looking for people to cheer us on. But the reality is, and you have to choose what you listen to, um, and, and choose people well, but to be able to invite, um, criticism, uh, and people being critical in, in a, in a healthy way of what you're doing will add value. And, and even if you, it just helps build the muscle of being able to answer that question, being able to validate, um, the mission or the mechanism or the financial model or whatever it is. Um, I love that answer. And it's not one that I don't think we've ever heard that. So thank you for, thank you for that. That's a gift. Um, now we're going to end with this quick little fun part that we we like to do to help our audience better get to know you, which is hard to believe that they they haven't really gotten a good dose of Brittany in this. But it's our quick six. I'm going to ask you um, quick, quickly, uh, six questions, just whatever comes to mind. Just give us um, the first thing that, that comes to you when I ask. So do you prefer a nine to five or a flex schedule? Flex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the answer, uh, there, I don't know if we've had maybe one entrepreneur, Elizabeth's holding her finger up, one entrepreneur that's uh, that's answered nine to five. So um, we're, we're collecting data here. Um, would you prefer to vacation in the mountains or on the beach? Mountains. Okay. Um, and then work from a home office or out of home office? Both. <laughs> Both. And is that because you like just the diversity, mixing it up, changing it up, or, or is it more a scheduled thing? Both. I think, um, (laughs) I I like the diversity, but also I think there's, if, if I can work from home, I like to, because then if I'm between calls or emails, I can pop in and give my kids a hug and be present. But there's also times where I really need to focus and I need to be in the office or at a meeting. And, um, I think, 
working from home and having an office um, allows for that. Yeah. Yeah. And then would you prefer working alone or with a team? Both. Um, Probably would err more on working with a team. Um, But I also think there's, there's value in, you know, visioning and dreaming and um, putting it together. I I think really both um, for me. And I think for anybody who's in that leadership capacity, whether it's at the helm of the company or within the company, that it's required that time to be alone and to really think um, about where you're leading the team and and where you're taking the vision requires that. Um, And then I think this is the hardest question. Do you prefer Thai or Mexican food? Oh man, Mexican. I'm in Texas. I eat Mexican food like <laughs> six no, times a week. I know, here, a so. no brainer for you. Okay. That's a total no brainer for me. Yeah. And so the last question is, um, obviously the name of this podcast is Liberty Sessions and the, the, the name of our, um, company is Liberty. Our URL is Liberty for her.com. We're all about Liberty. Um, so what does it mean for you, Brittany, when we say, um, what does it mean to be liberated? What would your answer be? Think being authentic. Hmm. That's a great, short, succinct answer. I love it. I, we're just going to, I feel like we've come away with like a good solid five quotables from Brittany, um, including the dotting of the I's, crossing of the T's and making rainbows. I love that. I, I'm going to, I'm going to post that one on my wall. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for this time. Thank you for creating a cola and offering it um, to those who want to wear beautiful jewelry all the way to those who need a model and a path for how to have a social impact and how to commit themselves to a mission. Um, You have truly been an inspiration and I appreciate your time, Brittany. Oh, thank you. I I appreciate all you do and um, just excited to see, you know, the work that you continue to do and how it's growing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Liberty listeners, we want you to keep listening to all those episodes that you haven't heard. And so we're going to give you a chance to do that and give ourselves a chance to take a little break so we can enjoy the holidays, get a bunch of stuff done at Liberty to get ready to launch in 2018. So we will be live and back in studio in January. In the meantime, we wish you a very happy holiday and we can't can't wait to bring you even more stories in the new year of women who are doing awesome things and advising you on how to take that step for yourself. Until then, we'll see you later. Bye. Liberty Sessions is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty Sessions on Apple Podcast. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to launch and grow your own ventures. You can also find us every day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Liberty For Her. And please leave a comment using the hashtag Liberty Sessions. We want to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and brilliant ideas. Liberty Sessions is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Windham and music by Jordan Flower. 